Hello, I'm Roger Bellwest. And I'm Lee Broderick. And this is More Games Than Time, in which we're going to talk about games we've played recently and uh, then then look at a particular subject in a bit more detail. Mostly solo games, um, but we'll be covering games from the multiplayer perspective as well. Yeah, I, I play a bit of both, so I, I wanted to didn't want to exclude anything at this point. No, and we, we both have very different tastes in games as well, I think it's fair to say. So we're going to see what we can do about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So one one idea we've had, um, we'll, we'll talk about the, the games we've been playing and we'll, we'll do an exchange in subsequent months. You'll hear some of these games pop up again on each other's lists. And so, so let's move on into what we have been playing recently. Okay, Roger, what have you been playing in the last month? Well, mostly it's <laughs> turned into my most played game of the year and indeed most played game since I started logging plays at all is Rallyman GT. Okay, uh, I've, I've played that with you once or twice, I think, haven't I? Uh, yeah, back at uh, the, the Silverstone meet Yeah, in the before times. <laughs> um, when yes. we were allowed out to play. <laughs> so, yeah, the, the sequel for, to uh, Rallyman, which is a uh, one-player guild favourite. Um... It, it's got an interesting history. Apparently, the, the designer wanted, wanted to wanted to have a new edition of Rallyman. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, with, with the tiles that had originally been his plan, rather than the big track cards, so you have a bit more variation. Yeah. And then the uh, company he was talking to said, "Well, yeah, this is fine, but we want it to be a bit more head to head." So uh, how do you, how do you think those changes um, work? For want well, of a it, better word, it's a very different game, uh, mm-hmm. which is surprising. Given I mean, given you, you, you've seen the mechanics of basically mm. the core mechanics, are basically the same. Yeah. Um, but there, there is one tweak, which is the car in the highest gear moves mm-hmm. first in a turn. Yeah. So even if you're at the back, you you can overtake somebody if they're not too far ahead, and then potentially block them by going faster yeah, than they can accelerate. Yeah, because on there because you can't pass a car that's going faster than you. And mm-hmm. it's a pretty small change, but. It, it makes the it makes it feel much more head to head, which is obviously good and bad depending on what you're after. There yeah. is there is a solo rule set for it, and that is basically the same as the old one. The, the higher the gear you're in, the fewer seconds you put on your time. Right. So, do you feel it changes more between versions for the for the multiplayer game than it does for the solo? I think so. Yeah. Um, the, the sequel, which is confusingly also called Rallyman Dirt. Um, yeah. had, had its Kickstarter earlier this year and should be arriving next year sometime. Mm-hmm. And that, that is uh, back on the original rules. Uh, and, and it is basically, yeah, the, the, this is the rule set for rallying. It, it's all about the timing. You can sometimes overtake people, mm-hmm. um, but it's not a big thing. Yeah. It, it's I mean, as somebody that used to do some rally driving, that makes more sense to me than head-to-head battles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so so it's it's a bit of an it's a bit of an odd name for the game, really. But obviously, the Rallyman name and the core mechanics uh, are known. Uh, and it, this has been very much helped. I, I've been I took over the um, main Rallyman Championship on BGG last year uh, when mm-hmm. the uh, previous organisers didn't didn't want to continue with it. Yeah, I remember uh, you doing that. So I've been I've been uh, running that, but I've also been running a GT Championship on the same basis, and. Yeah, we, we've had quite quite a lot of players, um, but ba- basically the, the weird thing is run, running a course well in solo mode 
Mm-hmm. He's often so not- just, just to, to recap for for people that aren't aware, this um, this championship is organised through the One Player Guild on Board Game Geek. Yeah, and e- each month there is a course and the conditions you run it in, you know, which car, what weather conditions, and so on. And you you send in your time, and whoever does best wins that month. Whoever does best mm-hmm. overall wins wins the championship for the year. So there's a leaderboard that changes up each month depending on the the tracks that you the challenges that you set. Yeah, um, this year I did most of the track designing myself, though I did mm-hmm. I did get some other uh, submissions, and for, for next year I've I've uh, opened it up and said, you know, please please send me your stuff, particularly since um, for, <laughs> for the first for year <laughs> we used just the core set because a lot of people bought right. the core set and then couldn't get the expansions. Um, but the expansions are back in print and should be uh, arriving in shops about the same time this podcast gets released. Mm-hmm. Uh, so more people should have access to those. Okay, it's a little bit of an advert for the for the One Player Guild Valley Championship there for you then. I suppose, yeah. It's it's it's, <laughs> it's a good bunch of people. Um, mm-hmm. It's a very sustained thing, isn't it? I mean, I know there's a lot of um, challenges in the One Player Guild for various different games, but the Valley Man Championship, I think, must have been going longer than just about any other now. Uh, yeah, at least six or seven years. Yeah. And at the end of last year, I, I was thinking about shutting it down because we were only getting you know about eight to ten Mm. entrance in a month but those are very keen players yeah. and they, they don't all want to switch over to Rallyman GT which is fair enough it is a different mm-hmm. game um, and it's not a lot of work I'm quite happy to keep running it as long as people keep sending me well, look, uh, I mean, it, it, the courses. fact that it's been going so long points up I would think to a, a good strong community yeah and, um, and, and, and I mean and hopefully even... with hopefully with the new the new version coming out you could get a, a new um injection of new players into it as well. Yeah, and we are actually seeing some people uh, playing the old version uh, afresh. Mm-hmm. It's it's not available at this point except second-hand. Um, but, you know, the, the maps are out there, the, the rules are out there. You can, if you want to, effectively print and play it, though obviously there's no official yeah. version of that. So yeah, if, if if you want to run the Running Man challenges, you don't actually need anything except a bit of ingenuity. Yeah, colour printer and uh, a micro micro machine and some dice. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so Running Man GT by uh, JC Bouvier. Okay. Um, in terms of. Uh... Board Game Geek participation, for once of another word, I suppose. Um, I, I've been playing around with something myself, which was um, a, received from, um, I think, Hal on the Solo Games Chain of Generosity list, a copy of Hokkaido, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't have any solo rules out of the box, but neither did its prequel. Um, is prequel the right word if it did come out first? Anyway, the first game in the series, Honshu. Um, which I really, really enjoy playing solo um, with a variant designed by Dajun King, which is, again, onboard Game Geek. Um, so when when this sequel game was um, was available, I, it, I decided to try it out. Um, and so Honshu and Hokkaido are both um, sort of city-building games... Um, that are played using cards like tiles um, where you can place them overlapping or underlapping existing tiles um, that you've already played, a bit like Sprawlopolis. 
And each card um, has several different things on it, doesn't it? Each card has six different um, zones on it. So Sprawlopolis, from memory, it's been a while since I've played Sprawlopolis, that had four territories. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could place them overlapping existing cards. I can't. Could you do them underlapping as well? I can't remember. You I've could certainly place them overlapping. Right. You could certainly place them overlapping previous cards that you played, and you could also place them adjacent. Honshu and Hokkaido, you've got to either underlap or overlap an existing card. You can't just place adjacent. So you've always got to cover up something from your mm. from your card. Um, in Honshu, there were lake territories which couldn't be covered up. In Hokkaido, that sort of ups the ante again, that there's lake territories which can't be covered up. There's also mountain territories which cannot be covered up. And they also have to join up to a sing to form a single mountain chain in the center of your um your area okay. your building so there's a, a, a single chain of mountains which are um, as you lay new mountains they have to go either uh, above or below the previous one and diagonally or orthogonally adjacent and you're building out mm-hmm. territories either side yeah um the reason they have to be either side is because the scoring for one of the things in hokkaido is the the city the urban area scoring um, and you only score for the biggest urban area you've constructed on one side of the mountain. So you can't just put the bit, the city, all in one place because then you'd score nothing if there's no urban area on the other side of the mountain. So you're scoring the smallest of the two. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, Honshu was a trick-taking game. So each of these cards has got a, a number on them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I've never... <laughs> Never played it multi- multiplayer, believe it or not, um, which is obviously what the game was designed as. Um, but I think that you all play your card and then the one with the the highest number, it's either the highest or the lowest, then gets to choose which of those cards that's been played they can add to their territory. So you're not just playing with the card that you've played that turn. You mm-hmm. can choose a different one to add in. Um, Hokkaido is a drafting game. So... Uh, we all know how drafting works. I assume people that are listening to this podcast, you take one card from your hand and pass them to the next person. Anyway, that all brings me back to Dajun King, who had designed the, the Honshu variant, um, which I love so much. has also designed a Hokkaido variant. Um, but when I got the game and started playing it, I realised that he changed it up to make it work. And it came with the designer's blessing on Board Game Geek. He chipped into the thread and said, oh, this is an interesting way to play it solo. And it is. Mm-hmm. But it is a different game as well. Um, so it's played over 12 rounds, the same as the the standard um, multiplayer game of Hokkaido. And Honshu as well is played over 12 rounds. Um, in Honshu, you have a, a hand of six, um, which is your, your trick-taking lot, and then a second hand of six. Okay. Um, in Hokkaido, again, it's two hands of six cards that you're drafting, this time instead of trick-taking. And what um, what Asian King did in his variants was he said this the first six cards you play um, have to go onto that mountain chain. So there was an an added restriction. Um, And there's also in both games, there's there's resources that some of the the areas you have have a little cube on, which score at the end of the game if you can deliver them to certain um, points that want those cubes, for want of a better... (laughs) It's really thematic, isn't it? Cubes and cards, that's all we need. Um, but it might be that you're delivering um, wood to a timber mill, that kind of thing. Sure. So in Hokkaido, there is a rule that you can um, sacrifice some of these cubes to break some of the other rules in the game. 
Yeah. So there's a bit more of an interesting thing going on there. And again, this was changed a little bit in Dajun King's rules um, to make it try to work for solo. And it, it was all, as I say, it was an interesting game. It's a valid way to play it, but it wasn't the same game anymore. So I was just looking at that thinking, surely there must be a way to do this more akin to the to the normal game, especially when there is a two-player variant in the rule book, mm-hmm. which changes up the rules of drafting just slightly, just enough to make it still interesting for two players instead of just passing the same cards between the two of you. Yeah. Um, and around that time as well, there was a, a contest appeared, or was announced, I should say, in Board Game Geek for designing solo modes for existing games. So those two things came together quite nicely for me into my lap, um, and I decided to come up with my own solo variant for Hokkaido. Okay. So this is the reason I've got several places for Hokkaido. It's a very long story. <laughs> this is the reason I've got several places for Hokkaido in the in November. Um, I've been coming up with my own variant for it. And this is basically a, a solo drafting game now. So very briefly, the way it works is um, I'm dealing myself two hands of cards at the beginning of the game. Um, mm-hmm. From each hand, I then choose a card to play and one to discard out of the game. Yeah. There's then another card that's put into that hand from the draw pile that I don't know what that card is. Yeah. I go to the second hand, same process. Play one, discard one, draw another one from the draw pile and then shuffle those two hands together and deal them back out into two hands again. So there's a lot of shuffling going on, but it's also sort of replicating that drafting experience to an extent that there are some cards coming up around the second time that I've seen before. Mm-hmm. There's two new cards each round that I haven't seen before, and I don't know exactly which one of those two hands the those new cards and the old cards are going to be in. Yeah, and if you if you have a hand with two really nice cards in it, you can play one of them, but you have absolutely no guarantee you're going to see the second one again. Exactly, which is yeah. cer- certainly my, the way I tend to feel as definitive drafting experience. Yeah, so um, it, it obviously doing it this way. There's no uh, there's no hate drafting, but I think a lot of people don't particularly like that aspect of drafting games anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've I've been playing that, playing around with it. Um, I think it works, and I, I quite enjoy it. Um, obviously, I'm sort of biased towards my own creations, but I I do think it again without having played the multiplayer version of the game because um, I can't play any multiplayer games at the moment. <laughs> the world that we're in. Um, I think it captures the feel of drafting quite well, and I think the game works that well. It's it's not uh, it's not really changing any rules from the the base rules. Um, it's adapting that um, the two player variant that's in the rule book, which which is having that extra card come in each round. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that works well. I'm quite pleased with the way that's going. Um, the 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 contest. Um, it's got some really weird rules. This contest. Um, the guy that's invented it seems to be fielding questions every day from people questioning how the rules work and everything else and he doesn't seem to understand why everybody's constantly questioning it um, but from what I understand so I've I put a thread up on Board Game Geek in the, the games forum um, which as I understand the rules of the contest means that people can contact me to ask me for a copy of the rules mm-hmm. Um, but they're not allowed to be posted publicly yet. And then at some date, I think in January, I am then allowed to post them publicly. And from that date, 
the winner will be calculated in terms of the total number of people that post in that thread. It's all very convoluted. Um, mm. And I'm not entirely certain I like the the structure of the competition, but at least it, you know, at least it's, it's given me some impetus to develop this solo mode and I will be putting it out there in the public domain for other people that are interested. And presumably the end result is that there is a thread in the games forum which says, hey, here's a solo mode. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So yeah, that's that's up there now. That thread. <laughs> so okay. Hokkaido Kale uh, Malbioha, I, th- I believe. Oh, your pronunciation is a lot better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've hung around with Finn. Some of us were sober at the time. <laughs> so it's a dangerous game. It's a challenge remaining sober around Finns. Yeah. I didn't say I was. Uh... <laughs> A game that I, I've just met recently on Board Game Arena, and at the moment it's not soloable, but though I've been working on that, uh, is Lesser Tycoon, uh, mm. which is about five years old now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's sort of Scrabble-like. You you have cards with sensible letter frequencies on them. Right. Uh, you're you're trying to make to a first approximation the longest word you can with your seven cards plus the three that are common and get replaced when they're used. Um, but you can, that it's, it's a very loose, you know, 1920s sort of theme to it. You can mm-hmm. get a patent on a letter. Right. And once you have a patent on a letter, any, anybody else who uses it has to pay, well, they don't pay you a point, but they, they get their normal score when they, they put down a word using it, but you get a point for each, each time your letter was used by somebody else. Okay, so this re- I mean, it's, it's a title I'm familiar with without knowing anything about the game, but it really is sort of starting to sound like a a gamer's scrabble in the the full acknowledgement that I hate that phrase "gamer's anything." <laughs> yeah, um, it doesn't have a board, mm-hmm. so I think probably the overall complexity is about the same, with the exception that that the on on the face of it, this wouldn't give you any incentive to use the rare letters. Because mm-hmm. your your score is based on the length of your word, right? Rather than anything else. But uh, there are about six letters, I think, the, the the most obscure ones, which also, if you have the patent on them, give you a special power. Right. Okay. So uh, let's see. So so there is some sort of encouragement from the system of the game not to just um, bid the most. For, I assume you're bidding. Maybe you're not bidding. No. Bid the no. most to patent an E and, it, and it, sort of no, win the game um, that way. At, at the end of your turn, when you've put down the word, uh, you mm-hmm. can you can uh, buy a patent on one of the letters you used. In okay, your word so it's just if, sort of first if, come if first serve basis. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so the the rules are things like uh, if 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 you've patented Z, you can you can add a terminal S to any word, even if you don't have the card. Right. Okay. Uh, if you patented X, you can use any letter twice in the word. That kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Sort of a, a couple of um, rule breaking. Yeah, or um, if a, if you've got got a K and you you put down a word with only one vowel, it doubles mm-hmm. the score. Right, that that kind of thing. Um, and that's uh, with, without that, it would be just okay. You know, I will search for words, I will play the words. But that that lends uh, a bit of complexity and a bit of interest, as far as I'm concerned, because you've got that. Okay, not not only am I trying to make an anagram out of what I've got. I've got this particular constraint. I don't want to use too many E's because because my rival has patented E, and you know, mm-hmm. if I score ten points and he gets three, then I'm only getting ahead by seven. Yeah. Um, and if I can use this particular combination, then I will get extra points, and so on. And, and 
the the search space starts to get interestingly big. Okay. R- rather than just oh well, you know, playing the best word you can. Uh, so, as as a result of this, and because it's not officially soloable, I, I've written a bit of software which will try to search that space and fi- find the highest scoring word it can. So, right, so, okay. so that I can then basically tell it, okay, your hand is this. Yeah. It plays that, then then I try to play something with what's left. So this would be a, an app-assisted solo game? In effect, yes. Um, I don't see it really being possible. I mean, obviously you could play two-handed, but... Mm. Uh, I don't really regard that as as, as a solo mode as such. Um, I don't. I mean, you could play for best score, but w- without the opponent buying up patents, yeah, you you would lose some of the fun there. And you you, you could randomise it and say, you know, the the fake opponent buys a patent each turn on the basis of these rules. That mm. that that would be a, a more true solo mode, and that, then it would be a beat your own score thing. Yeah, uh, there's a. I'm not sure that would work because there's a lot of variability. I mean, if if you get a hand that's entirely vowels, you're not going to play very much, and yeah. some games are going to be like that. So a, a bit like number nine, there's you can say I got a higher score than any previous time because I played well, or it may just be that the numbers came out in the right order. Sure. So yeah, it it doesn't really feel like a, I did better than ever before. Yeah, I think that can often be a, a problem with. Um sort of beat your own score solo modes in certain games where there is a a large amount of um randomness going into to the order of things and um, sometimes things can just fall fall your way yeah and it, i i find that that's not so bad if it's you know did you succeed in the quest or not yeah then then that doesn't matter as much cuz no no i, I yeah, yeah I, I agree i think it is more a problem with um, with the beat your own score types um I mean, sort of stretching that out for a moment. I sometimes see that with um, some of the Rosenberg games, which are discussed as which ones are better solo. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people will prefer the ones with um, with greater input randomness. And I, I can understand why it's giving more variability, more um, replayability, as they as those people see it. Um, but it does mean that comparing your score between games perhaps isn't as valid as the ones with a static setup. Yeah. Though, you know, have, having a static setup effect is yes, it's absolutely how good am I at this game. Hmm. But on the other hand, every game starts the same way. So, well, exactly. I'm not saying that one's inherently you know a better or worse approach than the other. It's just um, different things work better for different people. Yeah. Uh, so that's uh, Letter Tycoon by Brad Brooks and Talkie Viewer Rosenberg. Hmm. Yes, um, I've been playing New York Zoo. Which uh, is, God, what is it now, the fifth Polyomino game from Rosenberg? <laughs> Something uh, like that, yeah. Yeah, because there was Patchwork, which I believe was originally an, an offshoot out of the development of um, of A Feast Road, and I was told, and then he ended up getting into these Polyomino puzzles. Um, and then Cottage Garden came out, which was meant to be the first in a, a trilogy of Polyomino games, um, which it was thematically but sort of confused some people because obviously with Patchwork he'd already done a Polyomino game and now he's done a fifth one. Mm-hmm. So um, I've played all of them, I think, but Patchwork I've only played using the app, so I don't know how um, how people feel, whether they want to count that as me having a true experience of the game or not. Um, that, the that other we three... can argue about at great lengths some other time. Well, exactly. Um, 
the other three, Cottage Garden, Indian Summer, um, the Spring One, Spring Meadow. Mm. Um, I played all of those solo. Um, I felt that Indian Summer um, was the one that really suffered the most in the solo mode. Um, it, like we were just talking about, I think that there was a, a great amount of um, luck in terms of the tiles that were available to you in a game. Mm-hmm. Um, you had there were ten dealt at the start that you had to use all of them um, in the solo game, and I felt that it, it let's say, it changed the most from the multiplayer game, and it didn't really work for me as a solo game. Sure. Um, Cottage Garden was a very simple game, um, which I still like. Um, it's it's very simple. It doesn't tax you in any way at all. It's a nice sort of relaxing um, evening play when you don't have much brain power. Mm-hmm. Spring Meadow, um, I thought, was probably the best game of those three. It added just enough um, extra to think about uh, compared to Cottage Garden to make it a bit more interesting. It it works as well. It was the most Tetris-like. Yeah. Um, in that effectively tiles were coming in from the top and falling them down like like they do in a game of tetris on the computer mm-hmm. um you always you you had a you were building from the bottom up in rows and every time you completed a row that was completely solid with no gaps in then you scored that row effectively wiping it out right um so it was very tetris like in in the way that it approached things mm-hmm. um the reasons i didn't hang on to it were uh pathetic <laughs> might be the word. Um, so the two reasons, really, that I chose to hang on. So I, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was the better game, but I hang on to Cottage Garden because I didn't think there was room in my collection for both because they were similar enough. And I chose to hang on to Cottage Garden, one, because it's a smaller box than Spring Meadow, um, which is a consideration, as you all <laughs> yep. know, when you've got a lot oh, of yeah. games. <laughs> and two, um, Cottage Garden, the the... The thing that makes Cottage Garden interesting is actually in the scoring. Um, and you're moving up on two different tracks, and when you choose to move one compared to the other, it was when you trigger bonuses. And right. that is the most interesting part of the game. By comparison, Spring Meadow felt like playing a game from the 80s or 90s. Every yeah. time that you scored a row, you had to write it down with a pencil and paper. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end, you <laughs> added it all up. And that really began to irritate me for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) So those were the reasons I chose to keep Cottage Garden over Spring Meadow. Um, Which brings us to New York Zoo that I've been playing in November. Um, This was a pre-order from earlier in the year. Um, There's not many games that I do pre-order. Uwe Rosenberg's games are one that I'm happy to because I know that I've generally get on well with his solo designs mm-hmm. um bent eisenstein is the other person i'm happy to order their solo games again because i know i normally get on with his solo designs um presu- presumably with rosenberg even if you turn out not to want to keep it it's going to be a good enough norm- game that there's going to be somebody who wants it exactly and um i mean uh indian summer and spring meadow both of them i moved them on without any and Drake cult as well was a solo game i didn't get on with um but i moved them mm-hmm. i moved all of them on fairly easily um i think in the subsequent Maths trade, UK maths trade on Board Game Geek. They went on to another home, and I didn't have to worry about it. Yeah. So that brings us back to New York Zoo. Um, I didn't really know what to expect. I'd just seen Uwe Rosenberg tile laying game. I know I like these. So in it came. It was it's published by Capstone Games. Um, mm-hmm. 
which I thought was interesting. Um, Capstone Games uh, sort of developed a, a reputation over the last couple of years for slightly more intricate Euro games um, and with high production values as well. So the first thing to say on New York Zoo is it doesn't disappoint on the production values. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very high quality cardboard components with um, five or six different coloured wooden animal meeples. Mm. Um, and they these meeples really add into the game to help deliver it more in terms of what you'd expect a capstone than these other um, polyomino games from Rosenberg. It is, a, it is a more intricate puzzle than the the trilogy of games I just spoke about. Sure. Um, it it plays fast um, in the solo game. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fixed length that there's um, a, a central loop of tiles. Um, those tiles in the solo game are too deep. Um, you work your way around this track um, twice, this loop. Um, any any uh, stack that you've taken both tiles from, um, you skip over that space on the second time round. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's got a sort of a, a, a very finite end point that it cannot overstay its welcome. And a, so, um, a sort of rondelish feel, presumably, if, if you're saying, do I take this one here or do I skip on ahead? Yeah, it's a little rondelish, maybe a bit time trackish. Um, but what's interesting is the way that that loop works in the solo game um so whereas in his previous polyomino games um i think um patchwork had a bit of a a time track element to it although again i've only played that on the app um the other three of these games that i've just spoke about all had a a a sort of a continuous loop going around and you you knew which space you were going into um each each turn to take a tile from that row Mm-hmm. Um, this one with the loop is different in that if it's a competitive game you're just, somebody goes and takes a tile and then you have to take one in front of that and you're always going in front of um, the previous person Right. in the solo game I, this is a really simple idea but I haven't seen it implemented before you're given at the start of the game um, five tokens is a better word for, to, rather than confuse them with the tiles that we've already got elsewhere in the game <laughs> Um, so these tokens um, are a zero, a one, a two, a three, and a four plus. And each time you want to move around the loop, you play one of these tokens, and that's how many spaces you move. Mm-hmm. Um, and once you've played that token, you can't then play it again until you've used up all of the tokens, at which point sure. you pick them all up and start again. So it's a really simple but interesting little mechanism that you've you've got to sort of think ahead and go, well, okay, if I go two now, I can get two spaces forward, I can get that tile I want. But I then can't get that other one that's two spaces ahead of that one because I've just used my two token. Whereas if you did a three and a one, you then that would be a possibility. You'd get the second but, one but you want, but maybe not the first, first one. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and between these t- stacks of tiles, uh, points where you pick up um, extra um, animal meeples which I'll come back to in a moment mm-hmm. um, but the one sort of rule breaking thing you're allowed in the solo game is instead of moving using one of these tokens you can always move to the next meeple point for free right so that then becomes sort of the key to success in the game is deciding when to move without spending a token and how to set yourself up for things further down the line 
And presumably, if you're skipping over a stack of two at that point, you're saying, all right, I've got to want that top one maybe next time round. Or not at all. You're, again, because you yeah. might get round there and think, oh, well, that's still not what I want right now. Mm-hmm. So um, whenever you place a tile onto your onto your board, you have to put an animal into it straight away. Yeah. Um, you start off on your player board with two different animal meeples at the start of the game. Once you've got you can once you've got a animal meeple in a, or a type of animal in one territory, then you can only add that type. You can't have a, a meerkat and a flamingo in the same enclosure. You have to <laughs> have to have just meerkats or just flamingos. Right. And then in common with some of um, Rosenberg's sort of you know bigger box games, what happens then is as you work around this loop, um, there's five different kinds of animals that uh, you can put into enclosures. Each of them, once on that loop, has a, a, a breeding point that isn't a point you stop at, it's a point you pass. Mm-hmm. And when you pass that point, that type of animal will breed if you have an enclosure with two or more of that mm-hmm. species in the enclosure. Sure. Um, up to a maximum of two enclosures. So if you've got three enclosures and they've all got two meerkats in, then two of those meerkat enclosures will have an extra meerkat, the mm-hmm. third one won't. Yeah. As soon as an enclosure fills out, um, all of the meerkats for or whatever the animal is in that enclosure, um, all of them then disappear. You keep one of them that goes back into your supply effectively. Um, and you can grab a, a bonus tile, which is a, an amusement tile, um, not one that you put animals in. It could be the sort of roller coasters or chip stands or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so they help you fill out your board. I think that's and sort of are, the, are, the are get- those simpler shapes than the enclosures then or? Uh they are yeah there's um there's sort of the the chip stands are, are a, a single square um mm-hmm. the biggest roller coaster I think is a, a 2 by 8 square um and there are some L shaped ones in there as well so they oh, they yeah. help you sort of fill in the odd spaces mm-hmm. um I think that's sort of the the key to the game is you're managing these um you're managing your own progress around the loop um you're trying to set yourself up to trigger getting these bonus tiles to help fill in the board yeah um on your second time around if you manage to fill out your board before you hit the the end point then you win and you score your score is the number of spaces um on that loop that you've got left if you hit that second, uh, if you've hit the start line for a second time and you haven't filled out your player board, then you lose and mm-hmm. you have a negative score, which is the the spaces on your player board that you haven't managed to fill in. And it looks as if this is what about a sixteen by sixteen board or something like that? Uh, roughly, roughly. Uh, yeah, I haven't looked at it. But there, there are two. There are two solo boards in the game. Um, one is bigger than the other. Um, once I worked out what I was doing on the smaller board, I flipped it and went on to the bigger one and promptly lost horribly and went back to the smaller board again. <laughs> um, I mean, even knowing how to win, I'm still losing some games. So it, it is a, a more intricate puzzle than, than his other tile layers. So I've been really enjoying it. I'm really impressed. Um, and I think it is one that's going to stay in my collection, whether that's instead of Cottage Garden or whether they can both coexist. I don't quite know yet. Mm-hmm. That's uh, New York that's- Zoo. That's by Uwe Rosenberg. Uh, one that's... I... Ooh. 
picked up <laughs> picked up at the beginning of this year and thought, gosh, this looks really interesting, and put it on my ten by ten, and then didn't play mm. until about two weeks ago. Um, designed as a solo game, uh, Maiden's yep. Quest. I have heard of it. Yeah. I'm vaguely familiar with it. I've never played it. It got a fair, fair bit of uh, buzz towards the end of last year. Uh, had had some very mixed opinions, from what I remember. Yeah, well, the first thing is the the rule book that comes in the box is is really terrible. It's not a complicated <laughs> game, but the rule book makes it seem complicated. Right. Um, fundamentally, what you know, the 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 theme? All right, is, is you you are a maiden trying to escape from a capture of some sort mm. um, by her own efforts. Yeah, which I think appeal to a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, in practice, in the gameplay, you've got uh, four or five different... You, you you go through your deck until you see until you find a challenge, which might be you know a locked door, a monster, the actual right. capital, and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, and each pass through the deck, uh, your your level number goes up. So you know, when, you, when you're level one, you can ignore anything that's higher than level one. You can just bypass it without penalty. Right. Uh, so as you go through, you have you have to take on the, the tougher ones. Then the five cards behind that in the deck become your resources for this obstacle. Okay. So you know, the obstacle might say any 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 three of swords or magic, and if you've got three swords or three magic or some combination in in the next five cards, then then you're fine. You can overcome it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not quite that simple, obviously, because some symbols say you can add another couple of cards to your hand, or uh, you can swap some symbol to something else, and so on. Yeah. The usual rewards or penalties for passing or failing a challenge are upgrades and downgrades, because each card may have uh, three or four different modes. There's essentially no art on most of the cards, on the resources. Mm-hmm. Because what you start with is effectively the left-hand half of, right. the, of, of the front of the card, and that, that is your standard mode. Um, if you get an upgrade, you can make it the right-hand half, so you t- turn the card over. Okay. And if you, if you downgrade it, there might be one or two on the back that are uh, more parlous, mm. and eventually you can downgrade it to, to, uh, to the, the black face, which is essentially a junk card that you, that you can't then get rid of. Right. Uh, you pass an obstacle, it will become a ally of some sort, or, or some sort of assistance in in the quest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if, eventually, you will you either take on the captor, which will take something really challenging, like you know, seven of any symbol. Yeah. Um, when most cards have only one until they've been upgraded a bit, uh, or in some cases, if, if you downgrade a card far enough, you can find an exit, which is a lesser challenge but a more specific one. So it might be you know three keys, and keys are quite rare. Mm-hmm. And yeah, this is not. <laughs> this, this this should be a game that that uh, doesn't work for me. Um, I'm, I'm I'm not generally. I like fairly thematic games, and when a game yeah. is basically abstract but says it's thematic, that's mm. u- usually a bit of a red flag for me. Yeah, and this is obviously an abstract game with with only a tissue of theme, but it's fun. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um. And you, you have oh, what is it? The, the the tiara that when you upgrade it turns into into an actual pair of wings. How <laughs> well you know it, it's 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 that kind of fairy story logic. Yeah. Um, and mo- most of them have some sort of pithy quote under the card as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's it's a tight design. Uh, the only really thing. Thing really wrong with it mechanically is that when you set when you set up a game, 
Um, mm. You have to take, you know, st- start with your wh- which of the eight or so uh, heroines and which of the eight or so villains you're going to go with, and they, they yeah. then have a recipe on the back that says how many other cards of which sort you get. Yeah. And that that can be a bit fiddly, though I'm, I'm working on a 3D printed insert so that I can keep all the decks separate in the box rather than having them in plastic bags. This is a serious investment, Roger. Despite the, <laughs> the, the mixed opinions on this game, you, you're obviously really loving it. If you're wanting to make your own uh, make your own insert, well, I do have my own 3D printer. Well, <laughs> I know, but it's it's still you know time and effort into doing it. it it's it's surprisingly charming. Um, though I would say to anybody even giving thought to this, go to mm. BGG, get the second edition rulebook, ignore the first edition rulebook. It will just so confuse you. you. Do you think most of the criticism then came because of that first rulebook rather than through any faults of the game itself? It may well be. I mean, I would also say... This is the impression I'm getting from you. Certainly, had I criticised it after my first attempt at a play, I I would have been Mm. saying this rulebook makes no sense. Um, Also, you know, it it was described in in very thematic terms and it's not really a very thematic game. So Mm -hmm. if you're thinking... If what you want is a, is a game about actual empowerment of the heroine, well, yeah. but, but it's in there. I mean, it's the heroine who's doing stuff. Um, you you get various rescuers who can be helpful or not, mm. depending on how you play them. But you know, if you t- if you told me you were going to reskin it as I don't know, space adventure or something, or indeed mm. a dungeon crawler, mm. I I wouldn't say that's impossible. Um, no, but I mean, to, to a certain extent. Um... That's inevitable of any of these games, isn't it? Um, surely the point is that they chose to to make it that theme, that they chose to have a a message of um, I don't know female empowerment, for want of a better phrase. Um, yeah, when I, yes, I, they could have made it as a, a a male astronaut or you know a fierce badger or anything else. <laughs> they, they chose to theme it the way they did. Yeah, I, I think what I'm saying is I'm, I'm glad the, I'm glad the game has that theme. Mm. But I don't think the theme adds to the experience of this particular game, mm-hmm. especially. Okay. So do, 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 if I do, you feel do you feel that the the theme doesn't come through at all? Do you feel it's just it, an abstract it, thing where you're matching symbols? It, it's there a bit. You get as, as well as well as your heroine, your your maiden. Um, you always start with a dress card, mm-hmm. which is basically a, a, an unambiguously good. Gives you a boost when when you when you yeah. come across it in the deck card, and yeah, you could have called that something else, but it's called a dress. This includes the armored dress, which is all right. It's a suit of armor, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this, uh, this is. Um, I'm, I'm starting to think this might be my one from the month to um, to ask to play. I think, but you know, you're, you're you're making some interesting sounds. You've got obvious enthusiasm for the game, and it's not one I've played before. Yeah, I, I think. To be fair, you you will know probably after about one and a half games whether 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 this is a, ga- a game you feel enthused about. Because, all right, I've, well, that's I've, perfect. I've, <laughs> Quick I've, decisions, move on to something else. So, so far, <laughs> I've tried uh, two of the maidens and two of the villains, and yeah. there was some difference in gameplay, but not a huge amount. I, I will try some of the others. I, I, this mm-hmm. is on my ten by ten for the year, uh, so so I've I've still got several games to get through. Right uh, in the next. How many days? Uh. <laughs> so it wasn't something at the start of the year you felt like revisiting that frequently, but you've um, you've come to appreciate it as you played more in the last well, month or so. I, I got it in the trade just about at the start of the year, and then mm-hmm. I've basically been not doing anything with it since. Right. Okay. So okay, 
So all of your plays have been in the last month so far? Yes. Right. Okay, I, just, I wasn't sure if that was something you'd played sort of one game back in January and then were making yourself play the others now, but it's, they've all come recently. Yeah, it's basically, I, I, I have lots of games and I don't have a lot of gaming time. I'm not, I'm not as dedicated to solo as, well, you and many other people. Mm. I, I do other things as well. So... Yeah. This is one of the reasons I like a 10 by 10 because it encourages me to not not just try a game and say, okay, I've played it now, but to try a game and try it enough times that I, I feel I'm getting an idea of what it's about yeah. and whether I want to keep it and so on. And, and mm. so, so far, that's that's looking like a yes. Yeah, so that's good. Uh, Maiden's Quest, Ken so, C. Shannon III. Okay, well, talking of um, small card games, which are dressed up as being thematic, but really require a lot of imagination to make them so. Um, I played a couple of games in November of uh, the second edition of Adventure of D by Jack Darwood. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a game that I played the original version of. Um, God, a few years ago now, I played it uh, competitively um, with a couple of other one-player guild members at um, Aircon. Mm-hmm. Um and then last year, I was fortunate enough to be able to borrow a copy um, and played a few solo games of at home. Um, so the Kickstarter... So Kickstarter was this year for this second edition. Um, I, I did get involved at that point of um, checking the English rules just to make sure that they actually made sense in English <laughs> because um, J- Jack is Indonesian, so you know it's not his first language. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't have anything else to do with the game. I didn't get paid for my efforts on that. Um, I backed the game on Kickstarter and received it, um, I guess, at the end of October. Um, it's a game I like. Um, it's not a game that I love, which I know a lot of people do in the one-player guild. Mm-hmm. Um, the first edition was characterised by the worst art you'll ever see in any card game or board game. Oh, I think there's challenges on that, but okay. Well, <laughs> there's always challenges on that, um, and certainly I've shown it to, to some people and they've said, oh no, such and such a game is worse, and I, I, I've always disagreed when whatever <laughs> such and such a game is, I still think Adventure of D was worse. It was awful. The new edition does have better art. It's, um, you know, it's not Fantasy Flight or um, particularly intricate art is still very basic simple art but it's improved over what it was before um, and what what the game is I'm assuming you haven't played it Roger but it's uh, it's um, it's a bit of a race effectively um, so you have uh, a world um, that's made up of uh, a grid of cards um, it's a 4 by 3 grid of cards mm-hmm. Um in that respect, it's very similar to uh, Gloom of Kilforth, which is also sort of a world made up of cards, and you move around between those card locations. Yeah. Um, in Adventure of D, and I can't remember if this is also true in a Gloom of Kilforth or not, but certainly in Adventure of D, the world is a wraparound world. You imagine it's uh, a full globe. Mm-hmm. So from the top of the grid, you can move to the bottom in one movement, and from the left, you can move right to the rightmost card as if it was all on a loop. That actually makes it a donut if you can wrap around both sides. <laughs> that, that was a lot of syllables. <laughs> um, so yeah, so it's a full, full wrap around world that you can move from, it's one side of the board is one space from the other. Sure. Um, 
So, so you're never more than sort of two or three spaces from anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Um, what's interesting in um, Adventure of D is the card play. So apart from the 12 um, cards that make up the landscape, and in the second edition they're all double-sided, so there's a bit more variety there than what there was in the first edition. Um, the other deck of cards is um, all multi-use cards. So they're what goes into your hand and you can spend them for movement or for powering up abilities for um, encounters. Yeah. Um, they're also used um, to for, for enemies. Um, they're also used to resolve movement, so shadow cards and things. Um, they're also used to, to power up various things on your character sheets. So there's this full sort of adventure game experience driven by these cards that can be used in about four or five different ways, depending on what you're asking of them at any one moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and presumably you've got a limited supply, so you need to choose whether this card is going to do this or that or the other. Well, so there's the draw deck itself is um, is quite thick. Uh, I haven't counted uh, counted the number of cards, but it's, it's in excess of a normal you know standard playing card mm-hmm. deck. Um, or the the box is like an old uh, Magic the Gathering box, if you can remember what kind of size box that was. <laughs> yeah, um, all too well. <laughs> um, so, and when it gets to the end, you do shuffle it in again. So there's not a, there's not a finite amount of cards. Mm-hmm. Um, they do loop loop back around. Um, what's driven is the the timer that you in the solo game you've got 12 rounds in which to level yourself up and get to the the boss location um and go through a series of three different challenges to defeat the boss and win the game mm-hmm. um now that boss location in the first edition was always the same um in this second edition there's two cards for the the boss location and they're both double-sided. So there's four different potential boss battles that you can fight. Right. Um, but I think they're all of the same kind of thing. Like the first challenge is you must have your intelligence up to five before you reach this point. So um, so ne- never mind taking risks. That, that gives you a, a nice solid goal of... Exactly. You know you've got to have um, powered up one of your three statistics enough over the 12 rounds to be able to get yourself in a position to fight that um, battle at that point um, and then the second one you'll have to discard some cards and then finally you'll have to have a certain number of cards left in your hand mm-hmm. so the final boss battle is visible from the start of the game you know what you've got to prepare for um, each of the locations that are around the board allow you to have. Uh, you can go there and discard cards to um, use that location in a certain way. Yeah. At the start of each round, you will reveal a couple of cards to add to the world that um, they'll say this is an encounter that's waiting to happen at this location. Some right. of those will be monsters that you have to fight um, and they'll give you a reward for defeating them. Um, some of them will be, uh, I don't know, a lucky leprechaun that will give you some gold. Um, <laughs> so you just turn up and, and you go there and you can do that. Mm-hmm. Um when you move, you also have to draw a, a shadow card, as it's called, um, that each location has um, a, a value on it. And when you draw a card, if it's lesser, higher or lower than that value, you will have a shadow ca- card encounter. You'll might, you'll have to defeat 
uh, discard certain cards to defeat that shadow. Mm-hmm. So there's challenges being thrown your way um, through these 12 rounds as you try to power up and level up to defeat this known final encounter. Yeah. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm more indifferent about the game than uh, than a lot of people, as I say. It, it's, it boils down very much to a race that you know you've got to do a certain number of things um, to set yourself up over the 12 rounds to do this one big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, the card play is very interesting um, because of the multi-use cards. Um, that's really sort of the heart and soul of the game. If you like multi-use cards, then you'll like the game. But in sure. order to love the game, you've really got to use your imagination and buy into this crazy, wacky fantasy theme that is done in a very tongue-in-cheek way. Um, with you know, big orcs that want to smash you and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. Well, presumably, that, if, if it's you know, a, a random encounters on, on, on a random terrain layout, it's not always gonna, necessarily going to make a lot of sense anyway. No, exactly, um, and that and that's embraced. Um, you know, it doesn't mm-hmm. take itself seriously. The tone is very different to Gloomer Killforth. Um, it recognises the randomness of what's going to happen. And a lot of the card text is written with that humour in mind. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's. I don't think you necessarily say it's childish humour, but it's. It's that you know. Embrace of, the absurdity. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so yeah, to enjoy the game, you've got to embrace that level of humour. Um, you've got to enjoy multi-use cards, and as I say, you've got to use your imagination to really sort of flesh out the experiences that you're you're having. Um, and accept that it is a, a race. Um, you know, it takes thirty minutes to play, and and it's it's done. Um, <laughs> so you know, it, it doesn't overstay its welcome in that regard, um, and it doesn't take up a lot of space on the table um, or on the shelf. As I say, it's a sort of Magic the Gathering deck box. Um, yeah, and and that's the game. That's uh, by how you say Adventure of D Jack Darwin. Yeah. Second edition, as I say, which um, I guess is more available now than the the first one, which was long out of print. All right, we've, we've been talking about some um, older games I've been going back to, but uh, mm. one once well, combination of old and new because the Kickstarter for the new edition just finished mm. is uh, Sakura Arms, right? Which is a uh, I haven't heard of that one. Uh, basically, it's a two-player deck construction uh, card dueling game, mm. and. If, if you'd asked me six months ago, which is my favourite of those, I would have said Ashes, mm. right, Rise of the Phoenixborn. Um, just in case somebody doesn't know the jargon, this is that there is a huge pool of cards you select from that pool to make your deck for the game. So does your opponent, yeah. and you're basically uh, fighting each other until one of you runs out of whatever resource it is. Right, uh, Ashes, I kind of like. Cause I, I played a bit of Magic: The Gathering back in the day. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I felt it had problems with the way the randomness worked, particularly the way you get, you know, either all lands or all things that need yeah. magic. Um, and Ashes fixes a lot of those problems. But since six months ago, I have been introduced to Netrunner, no longer mm-hmm. available, but um, <laughs> you, can, you can play it online. So there's nothing like getting into one of these games when it's out of print. Well, that's actually what I did with Ashes. Um, I, mm. I started buying it when they said, right, this is now over. Yeah, um, and it's it got quite cheap. Uh, now, now of course they. I, I remember it being widely reduced. Yeah. Now of course they're bringing out the new edition, but uh, mm. hey. um, as a casual player, I'll probably just stick with version one. Yeah. Um, but Netrunner, as I say, is, is great fun, and if you play it on 
Jinteki Ness or somewhere like that, then you, there there is no worry about the card buy-in or mm-hmm. anything like that. You can just build whatever deck you like that, that's mm. legitimate by the rules. And Sakura Arms is... Um, I don't know. At this point, I've, I've got about five games of each-ish. And yeah. I don't know which, which of that and that runner are going to end up being my favourite. But... It, it makes the deck building very simple. You have uh, various Megami, uh, the, the goddesses, mm-hmm. and you pick two of them, and then from there, I think it's something like seven normal cards and four special cards each. You build a deck of, I want to say six, something like that, cards total, right. and, and three special cards. So. Basically, the deck building is is not the sort of thing you, you're necessarily going to have to analyse over for hours and do spreadsheets and things. It's mm. it's something you can do in a few minutes once you know the mm-hmm. game. And this is the this is the sort of living card game model as opposed to the collectible card game model. You you know um, what packs e- e- what cards are in each pack in advance. You don't have yes. the random cardness. Yeah, there, there, there's no randomness in that. Uh, the, the way they're doing it in this latest version in, in Japan, I understand where, where it's a very big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, they they release uh, a, a new Megami as as a single unit, um, right. a thing thing you can buy. Um, mm-hmm. This is I can't now remember which companies do uh, level ninety nine games are right. saying okay. Well, there are three boxes each with six Megami in them, and because mm-hmm. there are currently five more. We're expecting to do box number four next year sometime when the next one has been released. <laughs> uh, this has been released in English before, uh, but they only did the first few and it didn't mm-hmm. apparently sell well enough, so now it's come back as a Kickstarter thing. It's It does all sorts of little neat things, like um, if you if you need to draw from your deck and your deck is exhausted, that, then, it, then you pay life points. Um, right. So that, that that's an intrinsic timer on the game. That mm-hmm. broadly speaking, there, there may be one or two special powers, but mostly you don't get life back once you've lost it. Right. Uh, you can you can you have a, a supply of um, cherry blossom petals. Mm-hmm. Which, well, they're, they're wooden tokens. And they they move around between pools. Your life, your aura, which is a kind of shield. But you yeah. have to, you have to move them from there in order to charge up your special abilities. Which can be devastating, but you need to pick the right moment to do it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there have been the last couple of games I've played. Um, I'm playing with a fellow beginner rather than somebody who knows it well. Yeah. Otherwise, I would be getting getting completely destroyed. Yeah, uh, it's been. <laughs> gosh, I've just done this really impressive thing and just barely won the game. And yeah, if I hadn't, you you would be winning the game this round. Mm-hmm. Which. Is a good sign because he he plays a lot of Magic back in the right. day and, and um, de- definitely knows that style of game better than I mm-hmm. do. So it, it's not just a implementation of that. You, you've got things like range. You, you start at range ten. You you some of the cards you play will change that range up and down, and some attacks yeah. only work at particular ranges. <sighs> All right, I'm, I've only been playing the, the basic ones so far. Mm. But there is there is enough to get my teeth into with that 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 I'm. Really enjoying the way the way it all fits together. It seems to make sense. Okay. Uh, so that's not not available yet, though. There is a tabletop simulator implementation, uh, Sakura Arms, designed by Backerfire. Okay. At least people can try that out for themselves fairly easily. Mm-hmm. Um, I, well, I think th- I can yeah. out old you. <laughs> 
So I, this month, have been playing Warhammer Quest, the original 1995 game. Mm-hmm. Um, which I still think is one of the best solo or co-op dungeon crawlers. Okay. Um, I will admit I've never played it. No. So, so for a long time, actually, it was, as, um, as anybody who's seen my recent solo dungeon crawler list on Board Game Geek will have quickly come to realise it was basically the only dungeon crawler available um, if you wanted to play solo for nearly 20 years that undoubtedly contributed to a rise in its um, sort of sought afterness um, and the second hand market prices mm-hmm. um, so it's not a cheap game um, to buy second hand now because it's as I say, it's 25 years since it first came out Um However, well, there is a new, well, a, a, a new game with the same name, but I believe it's nothing like the same game, is it? No, so they brought game? out um, three different um, dungeon crawlers in the last five years or so. <laughs> um, games Workshop, as they've started producing board games again for the first time in the world. The first was Warhammer Quest Silver Tower, mm-hmm. um, which was a co-op soloable dungeon crawl. Um, I haven't played it, but I understand it borrows a lot of the mechanics from claustrophobia. Okay. So there's a, a dice placement mechanism in there that you know you roll your dice and then you can use those dice to do certain things that round. Right. Um, I know that game has a lot of fans. I also know that second-hand prices for that have gone up a lot because in typical Games Workshop fashion, they produced it about for about a year and then stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, after that, they came out with... Warhammer Quest Towers Shadows of Shadows of Hammerfall Hammerhall. Um, That was more of an old school dungeon crawl. So Mm -hmm. it was a games master versus everybody else. It wasn't a co op game. Yeah. Um, And then finally they came out with um, Warhammer Quest Black Tower, Black Black something or other. Which is set it. I'm not sure exactly what kind of game it is. I think it's the same type of game as um, Silver Tower, that dice placement thing, mm-hmm. um, but set in Warhammer Forty Thousand, their sci-fi right. um, world as opposed to the fantasy world. So Warhammer Quest, going back to the '95 game that I've been playing, um, builds a lot on Advanced Tira Quest, which was their co-op dungeon crawl that came well it was their dungeon crawler game that came out in 1989 the same year as hero quest um i I know people who are still very enthusiastic about original hero quest and advanced advanced hero quest i don't feel gets nearly as much as attention as original hero quest i used to play both back in the early 90s and i love them both and particularly advanced hero quest became sort of a a lifestyle game for me in the way that people Mm -hmm. use that term um, it's basically an RPG in a box. Yeah. Um, there's a hell of a lot of dice rolling. There's a lot of tables to roll on. It does have solo rules out of the box, although the standard way of playing is um, Games Master versus players. Right. Um, the solo rules in it are basically roll every time you get to an end of a passage section or a room you roll to see what the next thing is you reveal you then roll to see if there's any monsters in there you then roll to see what the monsters are you then roll to, it's just a whole series <laughs> of rolling that's a very random experience 
um, and if you're unlucky, can see you go for an hour at a time going through empty passage sections that you sprawl out across your living room floor um, <laughs> and you run out of passage sections and you have to record them on a piece of graph paper to work out where you've been in case you get to the end and it's a dead end and you have to go all the way back again. <laughs> and it, it's a very, very random experience. Um, but then between adventures, it has um, you know the traditional uh, RPG type stuff of it things that happen between dungeons and building up your character and you roll up your characters at the start because everything's dice driven, everything's tables. It's a very big, messy RPG in a box, basically. That is, um, the centre of it is the dungeon crawling experience, but there's other stuff that's going on as well. Mm. What Warhammer Quest did was to really streamline that down um, in a couple of ways that at the time were quite innovative, um, and have been repeated in the more modern dungeon crawls that have come out in the last five years or so. Um, Shadows of Brimstone, I think, from what I understand of it, is more or less a re-theme of Warhammer Quest. Mm. Um, so rather than all this rolling on tables to to generate your dungeon, um, you have uh, an end dungeon um, sort of boss encounter card, which is shuffled with six normal room or corridor cards and then six other room or corridor cards are shuffled on top of that and placed on top Mm -hmm. so at most you're going to see 13 um rooms and it could be seven yeah and it could be seven so instantly you've capped the length of the game and you've capped the amount of space that it's going to take up Mm -hmm. um you also aren't constantly rolling on tables because you turn over a card and oh look it's a room or it's a corridor right let's move on um, if uh, there's a room, the card will then say, presumably, if there is something in there. So, if it's a room, then you have to draw an events card, mm-hmm. and that will tell you whether um, there's a, uh, you know, there's a dead body on the floor. One of your party goes to see what's on the dead body, or there's monsters that are in the room. Um, you don't automatically reveal an event card if it's a corridor. But the other thing you do at the start of every turn is roll a d6. Um, and that equates to if you're playing the the wizard character that equates to how much power the wizard has to spend that turn on his spells mm-hmm. but if it's a one there's an additional event as well so it streamlines it down in a huge way um, and becomes a much more playable game than advanced tier request it does still have most of the the rpg stuff intact you still roll up your characters to begin at the start of the game mm-hmm. Um, you can go to villages and towns and um, cities in between adventures, which is where you learn new skills. You can buy items. Um, to get to those um, towns and villages and settlements, um, depending on the size of the settlement you want to go to, will dictate how long you have to spend travelling there. For each week you spend travelling, you have to roll a die and events happen. Mm-hmm. Um Normally bad events, but sometimes good ones. So you've got um, that, presumably that's to, to give you a trade-off between I'll just go to the local village, which is nearby and relatively safe, but they don't have the neat stuff there, versus exactly, a, long yeah. way, a long way to the city. Exactly. So um, the settlement size um, is more, dictates what um, types of things are, are, are there, as you say. Um, so, for example, if, I was, uh, if my character is a dwarf, um, the stuff that I really want to equip with him is available in the... the Dwarven Guildmasters, the Dwarven Quarter of the settlement. Um, and obviously there's more likely to be a Dwarven Quarter in the settlement um, in a city than there is in a village. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So the way that they simulate this is to say that when you go to one of these settlements, you have to roll um, a seven to to find the dwarven settlement, um, which means there's no way there's going to be one in the village mm-hmm. um, because you're using d6. In a town, you get to roll two d6, so you're 50-50 as to whether or not there's one there. Yeah. And in a city, you get to roll three d6, so you're more likely mm-hmm. there's going to be one there. Um, so... That's that's how that works, and uh, and again, every day you choose to spend in one of these settlements. Um, settlement events happen. You roll two d six, and it's good or it's bad. Um, you can go to the pub and get in a bar fight. You can, uh, yeah, all the things that happen in a RPG. You can get recruited to the night watch and have to bribe your way out, or spend longer there before you're allowed out on your next uh, adventure. It's, it seems to be one one of the great things here is rather than just a random event deck, you, you've got random events for dungeon rooms, random events for travel, random events for settlements as as separate things, so it's going to make a bit more exactly. sense of that thing yeah. happens in that sort of place. Exactly, so it's all there and it's still a cohesive streamlined experience that, that bears up to, to things now. Um, you are, it, it is the dungeon calling itself is tough, you are likely to have your characters killed repeatedly, especially um, to begin with when they haven't levelled up. Um, but then the enemies themselves, in bearing in mind this is a Games Workshop game, um, <laughs> the enemies themselves can level up in a big way as well. So the initial enemies, again, have a deck of cards and they have all their stats printed on the cards. And when you reveal events, it says, oh, you've um, revealed some enemies. That, that's the enemies that you've got. And that's what you have to deal with in front of you. Yeah. Games Workshop in the mid-90s... Um, as they still do now, had a huge range of miniatures. And, of course, they wanted you to buy those miniatures. Mm-hmm. So, in the in the Warhammer Quest box, it came pretty well rounded out um, with a very good range of miniatures. There was, a, I think there was a dozen spiders, a dozen rats, um, a dozen skaven and goblin spearmen and goblin archers and orcs and orc archers and also three minotaurs. So there's a good variety of enemies in the box to begin with, more than what many dungeon crawlers come with now. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as uh, a 200-page roleplay book and an adventure book and a rules book, at the back of one of those books, I forget which, was also tables for including in your games every single miniature that Games Workshop produced <laughs> at that point. <laughs> So as you level up, and you can choose then to stop using these cards and start rolling on tables, which does away with some of that streamlining, but does give you an enormous amount of variety if you want to get involved on or either on eBay, hunting down all the miniatures from <laughs> mid-90s Games Workshop, or just proxying in some other figures you've got lying around the house. I, I'd been promising myself for a few years I was going to get back to this game and sort of start a campaign, um, which I did this month, finally. Um uh, I've got my party of uh, a, a, a normal dwarf and a dwarf troll slayer because you know they're dwarves and everybody <laughs> loves dwarves and if they don't love dwarves then I don't particularly want to talk to them. Um, I'm sorry, I, I can't hear you from up here. <laughs> <laughs> um, a Kislevite shaman because um, I think that's an interesting character for people that don't know Warhammer World. Kislev was the the, the, the pseudo Russian. Um, mm-hmm peoples and the the shaman is the sort of the siberian type part of russia so that's an interesting character and the standard wizard in there as well because the wizard in games in warhammer quest is arguably one of the most important and overpowered characters so why wouldn't you throw them in <laughs> um yeah so that's what i've been doing and I've, I've 
once again started having a tremendous amount of fun with this very old game that is um I mean, some people might be, if they know me on board game, board game Geek, might be surprised to hear me say that. They might know me as the the Euro gamer that loves all of the Rosenberg games and loves some of the heavier Euros. But as, as a thematic experience, this works. Um, and it's not too light. It's just about... Um, uh, what's the word that war gamers use? I don't know. The, the rules are just about complex enough that um, that it keeps me interested um there's randomness in there of course there is um but the, the whole thing is cohesive enough that it, it keeps me interested and i'm i'm enjoying my campaign and watching my characters developments grow with a bit of satisfaction mm-hmm. um that is i'm sure going to to run its course soon um when those characters get killed <laughs> um or if when they don't get called i i just get a bit bored or it becomes too easy because I haven't levelled up the, the miniatures and started rolling on the tables in that way um, and I want to move on to other things but that's fine, all the characters are recorded I can either come back to those characters again in the future or start another campaign at some point in the future that's you know, that's the beauty of these older games isn't it? Yeah, it, it's not as if you had to have uh, the deck with these cards added and these cards taken out that's much no. harder to keep track of Yeah, and I suppose I mean that's something else that... Um, it's sort of the trap of the modern dungeon crawl as well, where that they have a narrative campaign built into them. Um, but then once you've done that campaign, then you, you have to play the same campaign over again. Oh, we'll send you another one. Yeah, well, <laughs> exactly. Let's go and buy another box. Whereas, yeah, Warhammer Quest had... Um, the, the central uh, adventure book had 36 different adventures in it. And at the start of the game, you, you drew... Uh, um, one of your boss room tiles um, mm-hmm. and then rolled a d6 so it was one of six different adventures that used that tile um, so there was there, there wasn't a structured story in it you made the story up to suit your suit your, your own um, adventure Yeah, and there, there was replay, replayability built into it in that way as well as the you know, even back then of course they came out with two different big box expansions as well as all the different quests that they published in the White Dwarf magazine at the time And <laughs> so there's, there's a lot of replayability there um, and in terms, I, sh- I suppose I should mention expense. Um, we, we spoke earlier about how you know copies on eBay now are are very expensive. Um, but I don't think. I mean, it depends what you're wanting and how you approach it. I don't think they're prohibitively expensive unless you want to choose the buy it now option of somebody that's got a coffee up for four hundred pounds. Mm. Um, I did buy my copy on eBay. Um, and I just waited until there was one that was on an auction and managed to get it at a sensible price, which for me was £120, um, which I managed to recoup from selling my copy of Gloomhaven that I never played. <laughs> yeah, I'm just look, looking, glancing through eBay now, and I see somebody's got one unplayed, unused, unpunched on sprues for 900 quid. Yeah, bargain. Bargain of the century. Um, but I mean, if, you, if, if you're sensible and you, you say, okay, but well, if it's going to cost between 120 and 160 pounds, if you don't go for that buy it now option and wait to get one that's you know, up for auction, and, and then you compare that 120, 160 pounds to a modern Kickstarter miniatures game, which I mm-hmm. think is you know the comparison, then yeah. suddenly it doesn't look so expensive. And presumably, be prepared to lose a few auctions if that's the way it happens. Yeah, exactly. Um, and yeah, there'll be another one on eventually. They did, after all, make quite a lot of copies of this, and many of them are still in reasonable nick. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, mine's in uh, in reasonable nick, as you say. And um, and if you don't care about that, no doubt you can get one for even less that some kid back in the day painted with a load of enamel paint and looks awful. <laughs> it's probably still playable. <laughs> Uh, so that was uh, go on, go on. Warm request, yes. Yeah, uh, I was yeah. going to say, shall we move on? Yeah, I'm sure we're going on far too long. I'm sure. <laughs> Something that's come up a bit in uh, other discussion is. How much is the right amount of player interaction? How much is too much? Is there too much? Well, yeah, I think there is. Well, I'm glad you said that. As Uh, as a a proud one-player, solo player. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I I have played multiplayer games that Mm. were essentially, I'm going to take my turn and and do the thing without interacting with anybody else, and Mm. now somebody else is going to take their turn and ditto. Mm. Um dungeon roll that we haven't talked about elsewhere um, in the in the rule book it says the player to the left rolls the die but that is really the only thing the player to the left does while you are taking your turn yeah yeah I've played games like that uh, um, which, which is fine I mean obviously it makes it very easy to make it a solo game mm. uh, but it seemed to me that what what that generates if you play it multiplayer is a whole lot of downtime while everybody else is taking their turn. I mean, you you could in effect take the turn simultaneously and it wouldn't break anything. Yeah, I mean that's full on what people call multiplayer solitaire, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I'm curious. You suggested this topic for discussion, Roger. Was there was Dungeon Roll the game, or was there a particular game that made you think of this? Well, that 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 was one that struck me as well. Why why was it released the way it was? Um, I, all right, it's, it's the designer's own, only uh, published design at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, w- was this a thing that was tested solo and then he said, okay, well, solo games don't sell, I'm going I'm to call it a multiplayer game. Was mm. it a matter of we could tell people to play it simultaneously but then we need to include more of the custom dice? Um, <laughs> I don't know. It, I'm, I'm not saying they were wrong. It just seems to me an odd marketing decision. But a, a lot of marketing decisions strike me as odd because my tastes are not the tastes of the market in general. So. No, no. Well, you, you've already um, commented today on the the post I put on Board Game Geek along similar lines. <laughs> uh, but, but I do. I mean, it's it's a valuable or a valid question. I think this terms of uh, yeah interaction. How much is there? Is there are other games there where there's not enough? Are there games where there's too much? Um, but I want to to throw another wrench into that question as well. Uh, yeah, there's different types of interaction, mm. um, and I'm, I'm characterizing that, uh, characterizing that as, as three types, where there's positive interaction, negative interaction, and neutral interaction. Okay. Now, the neutral interaction I'll just do quickly first, because off the top of my head, I could only think of one game that I would classify as neutral interaction. And that's something you and I have both played a lot, which is Six Nymphed. Yep. So, for people that don't know Six Nymphed... Um, it's a very quick, abstract, um, it's not really a party game, but it's a very social game, isn't it? it, it it's simple enough that you can play it as a party game if people are already the Drunk. sort of people who play games. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there's, uh, there's four rows of cards. There's four rows of cards? Mm-hmm. Yeah, four rows of cards, and you have a hand of cards um, which have a number on them, and you play a card, and it goes into 
the the row of cards which is the the closest number lower than the card you're playing. Yeah. But is that making sense as I'm describing it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and if the row extends to six cards, as in six nymphed, then you have to pick up that entire row, and that is your score, and the player with the lowest score, once all the cards have been played, is the winner. So that's why I call it an, a neutral interaction, because you're, you're affecting what's happening to those players around you. If, if, there, if there's two spaces left in a row, and there's uh, the card down at the top of the row is a 10, and I play a 12, but Roger's played an 11 then Roger wasn't trying to hurt me at that point, but he has because I've had to pick up the vote. Yeah, I, I suppose if, if you were a serious card counter, then later in the game you could say, OK, well, maybe those cards are, are still available and these ones aren't. But... Yeah, although unless you're playing with the full number, of you know, the full deck, which really requires actually playing with more people than is recommended for the game, if I remember rightly, um, then not all cards are going to be used. Yeah. Yeah. So... As I say, it, 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 there is direct interaction between between players in that game, but it's it's not a positive interaction. You're not helping people, but neither is it a negative interaction in my mind because you're not seeking to hurt people either. Well, it can have a po- negative effect, as you just described, or it can have a positive yeah. effect. Um, if I ended up um, destroying, uh, yeah. t- having to take a row and then starting a new one, and you played the next card above that, yeah, exactly. You, you so in that same situation, you, you didn't. If you'd played an 11, um, I played a 12, and the third player had played 13, then I would have to pick up the row, and his 13 would be completely safe. Mm-hmm. So that would have been a positive interaction for him. So this, I, this is why I'm calling it a neutral interaction, because it's, it, is, it is a very interactive game. It's not a solo game, but your interactions aren't inherently helping or hindering other people. It's just whatever comes out at that point. Yeah. Is, that, is, that, yeah. is that a fair characterization? Uh, I think that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't... There, there's nothing I can do if if I if I let's you know if I'm in a six player game and I've decided that you are the guy I want to mess about because you're in the lead. There is yeah. essentially nothing I can do specifically to make life worse for you. No, exactly, exactly. Um, so I mean that was the only um, example I could think of off the top of my head of a neutral interaction in a game, mm. and I'm sure there must be others. That was the only one I could think of. Most would fall either into positive or negative. I suppose you could um, say, I mean, uh, uh, drafting where you've got you know the common pool of whatever's at the middle of the table, and we, we each take one in turn, that that can be negative. But depending on mm. the game, if I don't actually know what you want, yeah, then... I mean, again, that I mean, we we touched on this, or I don't know which what order we're going to put this podcast out in. But um, when we're we're talking about games we played this week, and we, the, we did this mention briefly uh, a drafting game, and we mentioned that some people like to hate draft. Um, so there is the potential for a negative interaction there, even if it's not necessarily. Um, I guess I guess that is neutral because the potentially there's a, a positive interaction there as well. If you deliberately leave a card for somebody that you know is going to be helpful for them, uh, yes. Though, though it, that in that case you, you're making a decision to, to mm. do the nice thing to do the nasty thing, and mm. if if you know broadly speaking what your opponent wants. Maybe because you see what they picked up on previous rounds, or because some mm. some aspect of their play is public, then it becomes positive or negative because you, you have some idea of, of what effect you're going to have on them, mm. and that's one of I the things you make. What's interesting about drafting is it's often employed in games where that's the only um, the only point of interaction. And I can think of examples where that isn't true. You know, um, Blood Rage has a drafting phase, and then you're into area control. Mm. 
but for a lot of games, drafting is the interactive point, and then you're playing around on your own board doing your own thing. Well, th- thinking of um, Terraforming Mars, mm. hugely popular. I'm not a great fan, though. I'll, I'll play it with the right people. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the first time I played that, I, I decided to follow, follow what was in the rules, and which, which doesn't <laughs> say drafting. Drafting is the advanced variant. Right. And it was essentially very dull, because I had this bunch of cards, and mm. that's what I'm going to play. Yeah. Whereas, if, if you're drafting... All right, you're still essentially going to get a bunch of random cards, but you, you've got... Yeah, I, I, I will pass on the things that don't match whatever plan I have, and I will get mm. from the next player the things that don't match whatever plan they have. And I can start from that to get some sort of idea of this is what this is what I'm going to be doing. Yeah, you get to choose a bit more your own strategy. I don't, yeah, well, right. It's, it's, that's not the only interaction because you do have the dropping an asteroid on people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's definitely a positive interaction. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, in terms of positive and negative as well, that there's there's extremes. So you know, the, the sort of the most positive interaction you can have in a game would be a co-op game. Yeah. Um, and then the most negative would be a pure take that game, as as I see things. Yeah, I I'm, can't think of an example right now, but I, I've certainly seen uh, something like uh, Race of the Galaxy, where you have the leader follower thing. It, yeah, sort of San Juan Puerto Rico kind of thing. Yes, uh, you choose your action and you get the the big benefit, but everybody mm. else gets the little benefit, and they didn't have to dedicate their choice yeah. of action this turn. Yeah, that that would be a positive interaction, I suppose, wouldn't it? Positive, even though it's a competitive game. Yeah, and, that, that, and, that, and that's interesting because I was trying to think of those sort of positive interactions in competitive games. And the other one that I thought of, which again I haven't played, is Lowlands. Do you know that game? I I know it vaguely. I haven't played it. Yeah, so it, it looks like a Nouveau Rosenberg game, but isn't. <laughs> it's um, got sheep. So it's it's yeah exactly. You've got sheep. It's that competitive farming game in the Lowlands as the title, which um, for. Anybody that's listening from the other side of the world is the Netherlands, basically. Um, Holland, Belgium, those areas. And as well as building up your own sheep farm, um, you have to build a dike to keep the floodwaters out. And all the players are building the dike together. Um, And if it's not built, um, then that's going to harm everyone. But the resources but if it is you... built, then you're scoring your own personal farm. Yeah, and the resources that you put into getting the dike built do not count towards your score. Exactly. So there is that. There's a cooperative element in there that's a very positive interaction. But you can, if if you wanted to, and I, I certainly can think of some people that I would play with that would treat it this way, who would just say, "Well, no, screw you. You take care of that. I'm going to look after my stuff over here." So it is a competitive game, but with a positive inter- the only element of interaction in it is a positive cooperative element. I've seen something similar. Um, I think the usual term is something like semi-co-op, though that gets to be used to mean a bunch of other things as well. It um, does, yeah. Doctor Who Time of the Daleks, uh, which I've played mm-hmm. a couple of times and a fr- friend of mine is a great enthusiast for, uh, mm. in theory is a, is a competitive game. Um, mm. But if, yeah, if, if you decide, well, to hell with this, I'm not going to win, so I might as well allow, allow the game to be lost because... Mm. I'm going to lose either way, and at least that way the other guy doesn't win. That, yeah, that that, that, that is a trap it can fall into. Yeah, I think in semi-co-op games that's um, that that can often happen, where one person chooses to to try and tank things because they're they're not having fun or because they know they're going to lose anyway. Um, I mean, a similar thing to that, I guess, would be um, would be dwarf. My own one of my own games. 
um, where in a moment of sort of designer self-aware wankery, um, <laughs> I, I chose to describe the mechanism as emergent cooperative elements, mm-hmm. um, whereby the, the enemies attack all the players at the table. Yeah. Um, but again, it's a competitive game. Um, so it's a bit like that Lowlands thing where you, you can choose to ignore it and it hurts everyone. Um, or, or you can engage it and that's protecting yourself, but it's also protecting everyone else. Yeah, everybody gets the benefit, but only you paid the cost to do the thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I mean, that was interesting at a certain point in the design process where being, I think, a nice person, every time that I play tested <laughs> this with my partner, we'd sit, we'd sat there and approached it as a cooperative problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, my partner or I, one of us had said, okay, well, you know, th- th- those orcs are out right now. They're going to be a problem. I'll take care of them this round if you do in the next round. Yeah. And I did and she did because we're both nice people. <laughs> and then the first time I played it with my brother, um, same problem came up. I said, okay, I'll take care of it this round if you do in the next round. He said, yeah, okay. And then I did. And then he didn't because he's not a nice person. <laughs> and that's the sort of interaction where that there's there's room uh, for different styles of play and you know some people absolutely thrive on negative interaction i mean I, I remember him saying to me quite clearly what's the benefit for me as far as i'm concerned both of us getting the suffering is exactly the same as us both of us benefiting and i'd rather i just let you suffer rather than pay the cost for it <laughs> sure and um, yeah it's the same with the doctor who because if, if you play that purely cooperatively it just mm. becomes far too easy if you, if you yeah. if you stop competing and just say well if if somebody wins we all win then there isn't a game anymore um, yeah yeah and exactly and i mean that was the, yeah, the I mean, friend of mine who's just... who's um, who plays it a lot has worked on some house rules for that to say basically okay let's have a pure co-op mode in which the challenges are tougher yeah and it was exactly the same at that point in dwarf that was the point i realized in the development and okay the the person that um goes there and deals with the deals with the enemy needs some kind of reward for it Otherwise, it sort of becomes a prisoner's dilemma thing, doesn't it? You know. Yeah, exactly. You, you let so me down last time. I, I won't trust you this time. Yeah, although I might not um, t- understand my brother's mindset when it comes to playing games, it, it's a valuable thing to play. <laughs> I know there are plenty of other people who think exactly the same. So it's a valuable thing at that point in the design process to be able to correct that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, I, I suppose we should say um, the, the fully interactive is something like a war game in, or mm. um, chess on Itama. Anything where you, but you're basically you, you, the game is about your opposition to your enemy. Yeah, and the interesting thing I think about that is um, so in the way that I characterise a take that mechanism um, is something that I feel is unfair, where the entire point of the, the take that mechanism is just to screw with your opponent for no good reason. Hmm. Um, in a in a war game, I, I mean, I, I still play some tabletop miniatures games. Um, and I don't mind that so much in those games because that's the entire point of the game. In order for me to win, I've got to attack you. I've got to do those things. Um, what I don't like as a negative interaction in games is when somebody will do something just to hurt me, just to kick over my sandcastle with no benefit to them. Yeah. If well, it's pres- something where the ultimate benefit is you're less likely to win before they do. Exactly, exactly. If it's something where they can say, okay, this is going to make, this is what I need to do. If I build up this, it's going to help me. Unfortunately, it's also going to be a problem for you because now you're less able to do that. 
I'm very sorry, but you know, I'm doing this not to hurt you, but to benefit me. Mm-hmm. And rightly or wrongly, I see that as a very different kind of interaction to one which just says, right, okay, this is going to hurt you, and therefore it will benefit me because it's hurting you. Yeah, because my goal is to occupy that bunker or whatever, and, mm. and you're you're between me and it. Yeah. Uh, there's a pathology in uh, well I, I first met it in Munchkin though it happened in some other games as well uh, because most of the interaction you have is negative the way, mm. the way I've seen a lot of games of it end is player. I don't think I've ever seen a game of Munchkin end <laughs> I, I, I have demoed it um, <laughs> pr- professionally uh, player A says okay I, if, if I win this fight I win everybody else plays cards to stop them winning Player B mm. says, "I win the, if I win this fight, I win." Everybody else plays cards. Player C says, "If I win mm. this fight, I win," and everybody's run out of cards. Yeah, and I- I- even if I am player C, that doesn't feel like a good victory. No, no, I think that's the thing. When when you're say when you're playing to harm other people, I mean, obviously, I mean, the, the success of Munchkin for one is um, is illustrative of that. But for, for a lot of people, it's something they enjoy. But for me, that that's an interaction that I don't enjoy. That. I don't think we can say there's too much interaction, but it's it's not a good kind of interaction. Mm. It would be interesting to, to try to build a cooperative game out of that. I think it would be very difficult. Mm. But it would be interesting to see what had to change to make it work that way. Yeah. I think, generally speaking, actually, uh, games where you have to announce you're about to win, otherwise you don't get to win. <laughs> I, I don't like that. Yeah. Well, so, sometimes... It, I, I... I'm trying to. I think Inish was a game like that. I'm trying to remember. Maybe, maybe it's. Maybe I'm doing Inish a disservice. That sounds familiar. And e- even if it's not a formal thing, it's something like Cosmic Encounter, which, mm. which I, I used to play quite a lot of. Uh, if you've got not quite enough colonies to win, then everybody is aware of that, and they're not going to do a deal with you, and yeah. unless they can co-win with you, which is fair, I suppose. It it just seems to me, at least, somewhat lacking in fun. Mm. Yeah, and you don't. Yeah, it's. It's. I think it lacks in fun, and it, it's kind of. It's trying to make that mindset of let's stop him, yeah. almost a key part of the game. Yeah, and all right, a runaway winner can be annoying, but at least I can admire what they've done to 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 get to that runaway win. State. Yeah, and yeah, th- there's other ways of approaching that problem in game design as well. You know, the uh, hidden scoring that you don't reveal all of your scores until the end of the game, so you don't know who's going to win. Mm-hmm. That, that's a much more interesting. You have some um, some idea who's doing well on the public stuff, but that may not be the person who's doing best on the hidden stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and that that I think is uh, is always interesting, and I mean. Things like um, things like Scythe in the past, mm-hmm. which I had a terrible experience of last time I played with you. Um, <laughs> but other games of that, I remember... Um, the, the, um, the only times I've played it, I think you've been at the table. Really? <laughs> <laughs> I seem to remember that game I got beat up and attacked by three different people on the first turn, which I never yeah. recovered from. I don't really understand why that happened. But other times I've played here at our, our local group, um, I two, three times in a row... I could see the game was about to end. I was high on the, um, what do you call it, the popularity track. Um, and I was able to just spread out and occupy a lot of board, mm-hmm. which suddenly meant that when the victory points were counted up, I won. Mm-hmm. 
which they hadn't noticed until that point. And it's, it's that sort of, as you say, it's, it's not... If people had sat there and cared to look at it, they might have realised what was about to happen. And presumably the timing matters there, because if, yeah. if you'd done it a turn early, other people could have moved in and stopped your spreading. Yeah, and I'm sure it helps that in um, in our group, combat's less of a thing inside when it when we mm-hmm. do play. Um, so, yeah, it, different people's experiences will vary from that, but... That, that, yeah, that's a classic example of being able to fit. Somebody chose to finish the game at that point yeah. without realizing they were about to lose. <laughs> yeah, we, we should presumably mention cooperative games because well, that goes to mm. a side thing. Because uh, all right, this, this, this may end up being a different topic. The, the um, alpha player, as far as I'm concerned, is, is a social problem, not a game design problem. Though, no, I, I'd completely agree some, with you. Some games are more vulnerable to it than others. Mm. And I, I'm a great fan of Flashpoint, but mm-hmm. Flashpoint is a game in which there is no hidden information at all. Mm. Uh, you, you, on the one hand, you can play it solo with as as many firefighters as you like. Yeah. On the other hand, if somebody wants to say, "Well, you should go there and you should go there," and then I'll come round the back, there's there's no in-game mechanism to stop them doing that. No. Uh, but as you say, I think that's a, it's a social problem. It's a group person, a personality problem, however you want to describe it. Um, the the joy of those games should be discussing things and reaching, you know, approaching problems together, mm. um, and, and sort of that group mind. Um, where if you've got somebody that isn't of that mindset that wants to be an individual and tell everyone else what to do, then I can see that would be a problem. Yeah, and the solution I'm afraid is just don't play games with that person. Yeah, which is. Which is tricky, particularly if, if it's the sort of setting where you have the game group gets together and then they play something. But mm. uh, yeah, um, yeah. Well, at least don't play cooperative games with that person. I mean, that's yeah. Uh, th- th- it, it seems silly to blame the games for, for somebody's personality <laughs> defects. Yeah, but it works the other way around as well. There is one particular yeah. guy I, I love playing games with. Uh, when when I can see him again, I will be playing games with him again. But I will never play suburbia with him again because he he will analyse his move to the nth degree. A- AP can be a big problem, and also just being a bad loser. You don't yeah. want to play a competitive game with a bad loser. Yeah. Uh, that, um, that, so, that's, you know, there's all the different thing. kinds of personalities. You don't want to play certain types of games with those people. That's the thing I've really loved playing, playing even playing with strangers on Board Game Arena. Mm. Generally, I mean, there's not a lot of chat anyway, but generally people will say, oh, that was a nice move, or, you know, well played, or something like that, rather yeah. than, oh, you yeah, know, now I'm annoyed. <laughs> yeah. Turn the computer off, storm out. <laughs> oh, it's interesting. I was trying to think about this a different way. So a game that's often maligned in the one-player guild as a solo game is Caverna. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like playing Caverna solo. Not as much. I don't play it very often anymore. Um, it was the first Rosenberg game that I bought, um, and I used to play it quite a bit, and I still enjoy it. Um, and I like it because it's... As a solo game, it's completely a sound. It's the most sandbox game I can think of in the way that I use the term, as opposed to I think a lot of people now sort of use it almost as a, an adventure game. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, whereas to you, me, a sandbox means like these are these tools. Here are these tools. You can go and do whatever you want. Yeah. Um, uh, so m- for many me, different things will have some positive effect. Yeah, for me, Caverna was that um, perfect sandbox game precisely because it had a completely static setup, which is what a lot of people don't like about it as a solo game. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could impose my own restrictions onto that set of tools and say, well, okay, what happens if I just decide to 
to not do any farming, which is what I normally did because you know, dwarfs don't do farming. <laughs> um, what happens if I choose not to do any farming in this game? Can I still get a decent score? Can I still win it? There's those sort of imposed restrictions that I enjoyed playing around with and making a game out of. I have never played Caverna with other people. Mm. And I wouldn't want to because I've always approached it in that mindset of, well, okay, these are my restrictions. What am I going to do? As opposed to having restrictions placed on me by other people of, okay, I wanted to go and get some wood this turn and now I can't because that arsehole has just gone and taken all the wood. (laughs) It becomes a very different game at that point. Yeah. Um, So that's something that I would choose to play without any interaction. Yeah. That, that's that's my choice, that any interaction in that game is something I don't want. <laughs> no, pre- presumably, um, you could, in theory, play multiple solo games at, at once. Yeah, multiple players. Just just, yeah. just saying, okay, we, we'd have an infinite supply of whatever this is. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's this, this sort of category of... Um, of games that, you know, they're multiplayer games that I wouldn't want to play with other people. For the most part, those games are competitive games. Um, but also Lord of the Rings LCG, that's my favourite solo game, and I wouldn't want to play that with other people either. Um, and the, yeah, that's a cooperative game, so that wouldn't change the experience that much. But it's my experience. I've always played it solo. I can't be bothered to teach the rules to other people because <laughs> they're not complicated, but they sound complicated. It's one of those sort of things. Mm. Um, and it's it's my own world that I can go and live in, not having to talk about it and make decisions cooperatively. So, I mean, I guess we're straying to different territory there, but there is this sort of interesting dichotomy between multiplayer games that I I, I would choose not to play with others. I don't think there's anything I feel that way about, but looking at uh, Flashpoint, mm. I think it it feels like quite a different game when I'm playing it on my own mm. than... When, when I'm doing it with you know, two or three or four other people, mm. the multiplayer and it, it you know, communication is hard, so so it becomes more chaotic. Uh, and it, and if I lose when I'm playing solo, it's completely my fault. Yeah. Where, whereas yeah, you get you take ownership of it more. Whereas I, I play it at a convention with you know people I know, but maybe they've only played once or twice before. Mm. And not that I'm going to throw blame on them, but we can say, okay, as a team, this didn't work, as opposed to. All right, I made the wrong decision there. Yeah, and that's a game I must admit that I think every time we've played it at our local group, we've always played the easy level mm-hmm. because there's always somebody that hasn't played it before. Yeah, so I don't think I've ever lost a game, <laughs> <laughs> which, from what I understand, is very unusual. Generally, I I usually play the uh, the four door house that comes in the basic mm-hmm. set, but with advanced rules. As an, right. as an yeah, I think it's the two-door one we always play. Right. Yeah, which is a bit harder. Right. Um, the I I had never actually played the simple game until a couple of years ago at Essen, where the, where they wanted somebody mm. to demo it, and yeah, the, the Essen crowd includes yeah, a bunch of families with children and stuff like that. So they said, okay, just play the simple game plus this modification of the new thing we're selling. Yeah. And yeah, that was fine, but it even that felt really quite different from the one I've always played before. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's good that that game scales in that way, though, to take into account different ability levels. Yeah. And for that matter, it, it's not one of those, you know, finally honed, you must use every option or no option. Uh, mm. you, you, if if you had um, 
kids who were learning it and they were happy with the family game, you could introduce one bit at a time and it would mm. still make sense. No, you know, this time we have the, the unique player powers, this time we have the you have to get the victims out rather than just find them, that kind of thing. Well, the, the most important thing, surely, is making sure you get the cat out alive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I know a small number of players who get really upset that there is a cat in there and it counts for as much as a human. And there are r- rather more who get upset if the cat is injured. <laughs> yeah. You see, this is uh, this brings us back to interactions again. Mm. <laughs> ah, shall we move on? Yeah, I think so. So that was more games than time. There's certainly a lot of time. If you enjoyed it, give us a shout. Um, not sure exactly where where that will be yet, but there'll be a link somewhere. <laughs> in, there'll be a link in the MP3 tags somewhere, and, and, and that'll lead you to wherever we're talking about it. And uh, hope to be back next month. Yep. Thanks very much for joining us, guys. 